to Dinner, Drinks, and Death. I am Elizabeth. And I'm Erin. And tonight's episode is Missing Persons. And we are going to be making this a kind of series throughout the podcast. So we will continue to do more and more Missing Persons episodes and cover more and more cases. Yes. In our first episode, we are going to go way back to the early 1900s. And my first case we'll get right into is about Dorothy Arnold. So Dorothy Arnold was born in 1885 from a very well-known prominent family. Her father, Francis Arnold, was a wealthy fine goods importer. She was well-educated and had attended college majoring in literature and language. She aspired to become a writer and had tried to publish some stories in at least two different magazines in 1910 when she was 25 years old. Her friends and family were not supportive of her writing and made fun of her when her stories were rejected. That's mean. It's awful. (laughs) That's terrible. What kind of family is that? Yeah, so she's from a really well-respected family, but they don't. They don't like each other. (laughs) They don't like each other. (laughs) They don't support each other. So this left Dorothy, of course, feeling very dejected and embarrassed. A couple months before disappearing, she asked her father if she could rent an apartment that she could use as a place to write. Her father said no, that a good writer can write from anywhere. So she continued to live at home with her parents while pursuing her dream of becoming a published writer. So the big day of her missing persons case. On December 12th, 1910, Dorothy left her family's home at around 11 a.m. to go dress shopping for her younger sister's debutante party. She was reportedly carrying between $25 to $30 in cash which amounts to about $694 to $833 today. Oh, wow. So this I actually find to be a little bit odd and suspicious because even though she was from a very wealthy family and this was a prominent part of the city in New York City, this was a lot of cash for a woman to be carrying around in those days especially when shops were known to hold amounts for their accounts for their customers who could charge the amount and then make payments later. So to me, I think it's a little bit odd that she's carrying in cash. So she walked from home to the store. Park and Tilford was the name of the store. And she bought some chocolates on her account. She charged them. And then she walked to a bookstore where she purchased a book. The clerks at both these stores later told investigators that she had been polite and her behavior was not unusual. When leaving the store, Dorothy ran into a friend who she chatted to for a few minutes. Her friend Gladys King said that Dorothy told her that she was going to walk through Central Park on her way home. And it was just about or just after 2 p.m. when they parted ways. When Dorothy did not come home that evening for dinner, her family grew worried and started calling her friends, asking if they'd seen her or if they knew where she was. Just after midnight the next morning, Dorothy's friend, 
Elsie Henry, called to ask if she had come home. Dorothy's mom answered the phone and told her that she had returned home. So her mom just lied? Well, we don't know. Elsie asked if she could speak to her, and after a pause, was told that she had a headache and couldn't come to the phone. So, of course, this is very suspicious. Why would her mom say that she had come home if she's still missing? Yeah, that's sus. So did she come home and she wasn't feeling well, or was she still missing? We don't really know. Huh. So the Arnolds did not want to report their daughter missing to the police at first, claiming that they did not want the media attention. They I were guess con- that's fair. Yeah, yeah, they were concerned about their reputation and thought it would put them in a negative light. And while I understand that well-known, important families would want to keep their names out of the newspapers, because that was the media outlet at the time, and they care about their reputation, but you would think that they would want to use their place in society to find their daughter. They but at the same point, like she was, what, 25 at the time? Yeah. She was an adult. True. She's allowed to do, it's, there's, it's the same for a lot of missing persons cases, even nowadays, uh, where if the person that's missing is 18 or older, there's not really much that the police can do because at that point, that person is considered an adult. They have their own will, free will. They can do whatever they want. They want if they want to go off and do something, they can go off and do something. Yeah, that's a good point. So they did, however, seek the help of John S. Keith, who was a lawyer and a family friend. Keith searched Dorothy's bedroom and found nothing was missing. He did find letters, which were postmarked from overseas two folders from transatlantic ocean liners and some burned papers in the fireplace. The papers in the fireplace probably were the rejected manuscripts that she had sent to the magazines. Keith also checked with hospitals, morgues, and the police stations throughout the surrounding areas and was not able to find anything related to her disappearance. At this point, the family decided to have Pinkerton detectives investigate the case. So they're still not going to the police, but now they're hiring investigators. I guess, like, if they got the money to do it. Yeah. So these investigators also looked into the hospitals and places Dorothy was known to frequent. None of her friends were able to give any information as to her whereabouts. The only clue they were able to go on was the ocean liners that were found in her bedroom. The investigators figured maybe she had eloped to Europe to be with a man. They searched marriage records and ocean liners that had recently left New York, but these efforts did not lead to any success in finding Dorothy. So finally, the detectives persuaded the Arnold family to go to the New York City police. They held a press conference and distributed information offering a reward of $1,000 for any information that led to her being found. Police asked if it were possible that she ran away with a man. Her father stated that he did not think it was possible. He said that he would be happy to see her date more and show interest in a professional man. 
He did not approve of men who had nothing to do, he said. It was soon reported that the man her father had been referring to was George Griscom Jr. He was a 41-year-old man that Dorothy had met when she was in college. Griscom was an engineer who came from a wealthy family in Pennsylvania. A few months before her disappearance, Dorothy had snuck away telling her parents that she was visiting a friend from college, but instead she stayed with Griscom for a week at the hotel he was living in. <gasps> Scandalous. Scandalous. My goodness. So her parents found out about her little adventure and, sh- and forbade her to see him again. But again, going back to what you said about her being 25, she is still living with at home. And they are trying to control her in that way by not letting her see who she wants to see. Yeah. So she continued to write letters to him. And she saw him again in November just before he left to go to Europe with his family for vacation. Griscom denied knowing anything about her disappearance. Dorothy's mother and brother actually went to Italy where he was staying with his family to question Griscom, who continued to declare his innocence. And if if she was there with him at the time, all she has to do is like hop out of the house for a little bit, go go to a, the next town over. Yeah. And then just come back like the next day. So she she did ask for his letters that um, she had written, Dorothy had written to him. And I'm a little confused about whether or not he handed the letters over to her mom because one source I read said that he destroyed them. He admitted to destroying them. And another one said that, that the mom took them with her. But either way, I guess it didn't really have an impact on the case. So I don't know what became of the letters. So if the rumor is true that he destroyed them, you mentioned that there were burned letters in Dorothy's fireplace. I wonder if she destroyed letters too, like that were from him or something. Well, it said burned papers. So it didn't say whether it was a letter or maybe the manuscripts. We don't know what it was. It was destroyed. But that it's a it's a working theory. It could be the letters. It could could be letters. The manuscripts. Yeah. Interesting. So probably due to the media attention and daily reports in the New York Times, people started to call in and report sightings from all over the country. And investigators looked into these cases, but nothing turned out to be true. There are many theories and rumors of what may have happened to Arnold. Many of them are silly and outrageous and have been proven to be unlikely, like one that said maybe she slipped on an icy sidewalk and had amnesia. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that is always possible. But mm. they looked into it. No hospital records were found and that would give credit to this rumor. So it's unlikely. And also not having any witnesses is strange. Mm-hmm. Um, another one said she was drugged and abducted, which is also not likely since she would have been walking on a very busy street in daylight in New York City and no one saw her being taken. So Griscom, her boyfriend, believed that she had committed suicide due to her failing career as a writer. 
This was also believed by her friends and family due to the fact that she couldn't be with her boyfriend. It is also thought to be a possibility because Griscom's cousin had committed suicide by jumping off his ship because he could not be with his love at the time, who was a governess. So it's possible that Dorothy knew of this and due to her failed writing career and her forbidden relationship, decided to take her own life. She did like by have jumping to... off the, the cruise ship? Yeah. But I thought there were, were there any records of her getting on one? Well, she could have used a fake name. She could have used a fake name. She did have ocean liners in her room. Yeah. Um, but her name was not found on any ship leaving New York. Like you said, um, she could have used a fake name. I think this theory is could be likely, but it's, it's plausible, but not likely because she seemed happy during her last moments. Well, I mean, that can be said of anybody who's struggling with any mental health issues. If it's, it's a common thing where that person is able to put on kind of a brave face, so to say, a mask, and they can kind of, quote unquote, pass as being okay, as being normal, but they're really not okay at all. Yeah, that is true. But what gets me the most is she bought a book right before this happened, right before she went missing. Like, who buys a book right before committing suicide? To throw people off the trail? Because it, it's it's easier for the family to think that maybe she's missing somewhere and could possibly still be alive than to deal with the fact that maybe she did kill herself. It could be mm-hmm, easier. But as a book lover myself, like, I'm not going to buy a book. And then well, I mean, that's you. That's you. <laughs> that's your opinion. You won't buy a book. Okay. If, if you know, if you know that I buy a book, I didn't kill myself. Something different happened. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So one more commonly believed rumor was that Arnold was pregnant and had a secret abortion, but died from complications during the procedure. I find this rumor to be the most likely to be true, or at least it makes the most sense to me. Because abortion, of course, was illegal at this time. And it would have... Incredibly dangerous. Definitely. Um, It would have been not only embarrassing to the family, but damaging to her father's career and the family's name. Mm This rumor became credible in 1916 when an abortion clinic run by Dr. C.C. Meredith in Pennsylvania was raided by the police. This clinic was known as the House of Mystery due to the fact that many women went missing after visiting the clinic. Dr. H.E. Lutz, a doctor who worked in the clinic, testified that Dr. Meredith had told him that Arnold had had an abortion there and had died, and her body was cremated in the furnace. So apparently this was not uncommon for the time. Many women during this time period died due to complications and were likewise cremated at abortion clinics. Like you said, it was very, it was not safe. Yeah. That's crazy. The, The district attorney in the case believed this theory to be true, but Arnold's father's said it was, quote, ridiculous and absolutely untrue, end quote. 
which could on his part be true, but it could also be him covering for the family saying that, oh, no, our daughter definitely didn't have a child out of wedlock at all. Oh, definitely. They wouldn't want that on their name. Exactly. In 1916, a prison warden claimed that convicted felon Edward Glenaris, I think it's how you pronounce it, Glenaris, was paid to bury a body of a young woman in 1910. Glenaris supposedly confessed that he was hired by a man called Little Louie. <laughs> what a great nickname. To drive a woman to West Point, New York, where they met up with two men. One known as Doc, and the other was described as well-dressed and wealthy. This description was said to match Arnold's boyfriend, Griscom, but personally, I think it could have matched anyone's considering how vague it is. Yeah. After a while, the men carried the woman who was now who was then unconscious to a house in New Jersey. While driving, Louis supposedly told Glenaris that the woman's name was Dorothy Arnold. The day after Glenaris was told the woman had died after an operation and he was asked to return the body home and bury her in a, in a cellar. When police questioned Glenaris, he denied knowing anything about it. Of course he would. <laughs> the police then searched several houses and looked for remains in cellars, but they didn't find any. This case has not been solved, but I do think the abortion theory is the most likely or credible. It makes sense knowing that she had spent a week away with her boyfriend, that the mom claimed she hadn't come home, that she had come home that night when her friend called. And it also explains why the family would not have wanted to seek help from the police. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't believe that one. I was leaning more towards the the ocean liner. Uh, yeah. But you tie it together. You've you've convinced me. I believe it. I believe that one now. <laughs> yeah. And then if the mom and the brother went across the ocean to to see this boyfriend, I don't know how much they questioned him. But they wanted the letters. So what was written in the letters? Was she writing him about maybe being pregnant or having an abortion? Or saying, oh, my parents aren't going to make me do this. Yeah. They're, or they're trying to make me. Was it a cover-up or was she really trying to find her daughter? I don't know. That's, oh my gosh, I don't know. I'm convinced now. Okay. Yeah, so I'm kind of leaning towards that happening of course we we will never know but it's possible the suicide but i i'm leaning more towards the abortion i think i am too now <laughs> <laughs> so that is my case all wrapped up Alrighty, so then i will take over now and i'm going to be covering the disappearance the disappearance of bobby dunbar dun 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 <laughs> So Robert Clarence Dunbar, or Bobby Dunbar for short, was born in 1908 to parents Lessie and Percy Dunbar. And this case actually takes place four years later 
on August 23rd, 1912. On that day, the Dunbars went to their family cabin near Swayze Lake in St. Landry Parish. And Swayze Lake isn't entirely, it's not exactly a lake, it's more of a swamp that is just crawling in alligators. So, you know, it's an ideal family (laughs) vacation. Lots of swimming. Yeah, totally safe. Totally safe. Uh, Present at this cabin were Bobby's parents, Leslie and Percy Dunbar, Bobby's brother, Alonzo Dunbar, as well as several other family members and family friends, making for a total of 11 people at this place (laughs) for this event. Okay. That day, the father, Percy, had to leave and go to work, which had upset Bobby to the point of breaking the strap on his straw hat. While his mother was cooking a fish fry for the group, he asked her if he could go with his friend, Paul Mizzy, down to the water to shoot garfish. His mother allowed it, and the rest of the young boys also joined the two of them. Later, at lunchtime, the boys were called to come back. And here's where details will start to get a little hazy. Family friend Paul Mizzy recalled putting Bobby's brother Alonzo up on his shoulders and jokingly saying, quote, get out of the way heavy or I'll run you over, end quote. Paul had a nickname for Bobby, that nickname being heavy. Wow. Right? So flattering. (laughs) So kind. So nice. What a great family. (laughs) In response, it's reported that Bobby's possible last words were, quote, you can't do it. You ain't no bigger than me, end quote. As all of the boys returned to the camp, Leslie noticed that Bobby was no longer with the group and was missing. And so I'm not entirely certain how many kids were in this group. Not it was very unclear it was never stated how many people were actually in this group of the young boys but it seems like paul was in charge of them and you know if it's him he's got one kid on his shoulders and there's like six other kids you'd think and you i don't know how easy or difficult it would be to lose one child out of six when especially if one of them is on your shoulders i don't know I'm not saying he's irresponsible, but I'm not saying he is not irresponsible. I think you would know who you came with and who you're returning with. Yeah. So he was in charge and somehow lost track of Bobby, though. So Paul and Leslie begin to call out for Bobby. And at one point, Leslie actually faints. Just falls down (laughs) from stress. And three other men from the party began to search the area north on the wagon trail behind the camp in case Bobby had decided to go after, like split off from the group and decided to go after his father. While walking along that trail, they actually came across Percy who was on his way back from work to join the group. And upon learning that Bobby was missing, he raced back to the camp to help search. That night with no trace of Bobby, searchers began to look for his body. They searched the swampy waters using dynamite to blast the body up, I guess. Wow. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They also used thick cables with hooks on the end to drag the lake. 
the next morning, divers went into the water to search any coves that the hooks were unable to reach and to see if a body may have been stuck in the weeds. The only body that was recovered was that of a deer. Since Bobby's body had not been recovered in the swamp, this led searchers to believe that he had been killed by an animal, most likely an alligator, because they were just everywhere. Searchers caught and cut many alligators open, hoping to find Bobby's remains inside. And by this time, August 24th, almost 500 men had come out to help search for Bobby. They even went as far as taking a straw hat with a broken strap, similar to the one Bobby was last seen wearing, and tested to see how long it would float. They found that it would have floated by itself for hours, leading searchers to believe that there should have been some evidence of his hat in the swamp. So if he had drowned there or possibly been eaten by an alligator, the hat should have been there, especially since they knew he was missing right away and this wasn't one of those cases where someone would go missing but people don't realize for at least a few hours afterwards okay but if somebody did something to him where would the hat be well that's another that's part of their other train of thought that was their other lead is if something had happened to him in the water, there would have been evidence that it was there. Since that evidence, the hat wasn't there. Then where is that evidence? That's, that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting to that. Okay. It was reported that the stress of Bobby's disappearance caused his mother, Leslie to fall ill. So the entire family had to return home to Opelousas, Louisiana. Since Paul Mizzy had been the last adult to see Bobby that day, he stayed behind along with two other men who were guests at the fish fry that day to help search for Bobby for several more weeks. Later, searchers found a single set of bare footprints leading away from the water and towards a railroad bridge. With no body found and no evidence that he had been killed by an animal, searchers began to wonder if Bobby had been kidnapped. See? Here it is. <laughs> we got to it. <laughs> Where's his hat? We don't know. It was thought that someone with a small boat would have been able to take him by going through the north end of the bayou. Another thought was that someone could have taken him by foot using the trail or by going down the train tracks. Searchers came across several travelers walking along the tracks and questioned them if any of them had taken Bobby. By August 26th, local authorities... What? My birthday. Oh my gosh, happy birthday. (laughs) By August 26th, local authorities had already contacted the police in New Orleans, which was about 130 miles away, asking for them to search for Bobby there. Percy Dunbar himself went down to New Orleans to hand out more than 700 photos of Bobby to people in hopes of finding him. While there, he also spoke to several reporters. A detective agency even made postcards containing a picture and a description of Bobby that were distributed to town and county officials as far as East Texas and all the way into Florida. The description read, quote, age four years and four months, full size for age, stout but not fat, large round blue eyes, light hair, and very fair skin with rosy cheeks. 
left foot had been burned when a baby and shows a scar on the big toe, which is somewhat smaller than big toe on the right foot. Wore blue rompers and a straw hat without shoes. And he sounds adorable. What happened to this boy? I'm imagining like a, a small, a short farmer <laughs> with no shoes. He looks adorable. That description is too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> The Dunbar hometown of Opelousas all held out hope that Bobby would be found alive. And some of the townspeople even contributed a $1,000 reward that was, quote, to be paid to any person or persons who will deliver to his parents alive little Robert Clarence Dunbar, no questions asked, end quote. Which at the time was a huge amount of money. It's equivalent to about $22,000 today. Yet eight months went by with no return or any news of Bobby Dunbar. So the money was returned to the people who had donated it. Just one week later, a major lead in the case broke. In April of 1913, a wire came in from the ladies of Hub alerting the Dunbars of a handyman named William Cantwell Walters. They said he was seen in the small town of Hub, Mississippi, with a boy that closely resembled Bobby, but his foot was too covered in dirt and grime for anyone to really get a good look. Oh, no. Uh, upon questioning, Walters gave inconsistent answers of who the child belonged to, saying it was his, it was his sister's, etc. He was giving just all kinds of excuses. At one point, some ladies of, or uh, not ladies of, have some citizens just like random people in the town they saw walters whip the child which gave a citizens committee a citizens committee enough to detain walters and to examine the boy they firmly believed that this boy was the missing bobby dunbar but asked the family to send further photo evidence which by the way at this time like how many how many photos are people taking and because i think that's an interesting question to ask because it's, it's nothing like it is today where people are taking 10 photos of what they've had for breakfast and, you know, of their, of their pets and whatnot. True. What and also people look different in their photos back then because they had to, it took a longer time. Yeah. That's why them. so many older pictures, the people look so serious mm-hmm. is because it took so long to take the photo that, Yo, know, you if you were had to if you had to be smiling for five minutes, you'd get really tired and you wouldn't be right. look like you would be smiling anymore. So it may not be an accurate picture. Yeah. But I guess my, my main thing is like how many realistically how many photos of their kid did they have back then? Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the Dunbars, they were quite skeptical as to whether or not this was their son, but received pictures of the boy who had been found, and they traveled to Hub, Mississippi to confirm for themselves in person. Okay, so this kid is four years old, right? I don't think they ever determined how old this kid was. They just said, he kind of looks like that missing boy. Must be him. But the missing boy was four. Yes, Bobby Dunbar was four. 
years old when he went missing. And they see this kid who fits with the description in appearance and everything. He's barefoot. He kind of typical like- a typical four year old. I don't know about the time, but a typical four year old would be able to speak and you know give some information about himself. That's true. They didn't say, I guess, from all the sources that I looked at, nobody's really asking the boy anything. They're kind of like, hey, hey, adult, do you right. know this child? And we'll get into it later. Like, it's, it's really interesting. Continuing on, the boy had a, le- a scar on his left foot as well as a mole on his neck where Bobby had had one as well. Newspaper articles all conflict on the initial reaction between Lessie and Bobby Dunbar. One account stated that upon seeing Lessie, the boy shouted, mother, and then the two embraced. A second said the boy refused to answer to the name Bobby, and when Lessie Dunbar went to hold him, he refused to interact with her. But that also could have been, like, the captor, if, if it was him, and a captor had taken him. Yeah, the guy could have told the kid, if you see your mom, don't react to her. Like, Yeah, because who knows what, what he threatens him with. or he Exactly. Because it's been eight months. That's, I, I would think, sufficiently long enough to kind of brainwash a young child. And scare him. Exactly. Uh, so another report said that the boy cried, he just cried, and that Leslie was quoted as being unsure whether he was her son. Others quote both the Dunbars as stating their uncertainty about the boy being their son. There were also similar contradictions about how the young boy interacted with Alonzo Dunbar, with one saying that the boy instantly recognized Alonzo, ran towards him, and kissed him, while another said that he showed no sign of recognition whatsoever. Interesting. Yeah. Leslie Dunbar asked to see the boy again the following day, and during their time together was able to give him a bath. At that point, she felt without a doubt that the boy was her son, Bobby. She was quoted shouting, quote, thank God it is my boy, end quote, before fainting again. So she faints a lot. How common was fainting back then? I think it was more common back in those days when you have a big emotion you just can't these days it. we have a big emotion we just go oof it's kind of like <laughs> drilled into us you know, don't be emotional elizabeth <laughs> rip <laughs> <laughs> or when you have a really big emotion you say big mood big mood big mood I don't know that one. I'm. I must be too old. You are too old, but it's okay. Big I <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Meanwhile, Walters was insisting that the boy was not Bobby Dunbar, but rather was Bruce Anderson. Walters claimed the boy was the illegitimate son of his brother and a woman named Julia Anderson. He also claimed that Julie, Julia Anderson was the woman who was taking care of Walter's elderly parents back in Barnesville, North Carolina. And upon further investigation, it was found that Julia Anderson was a single mom who did in fact work as a field hand and a caretaker at Walter's parents' farm. 
he went on to claim that Julia had given him the boy willingly, which she would later confirm, and then went on to say, quote, Walters left Barnesville, North Carolina with my son, Charles Bruce, in February of 1912, saying he only wanted to take the child with him for a few days on a visit to the home of his sister. I have not seen the child from that day to this. I did not give him the child. I merely consented for him to take my son for a few days, end quote. And as kidnapping was a capital offense in Louisiana at that time, some began to question Walter's motive for stating that he had full consent to have the child with him. Uh, pretty much everybody thought that he was just trying to avoid a kidnapping charge. And he even wrote to the Dunbar family stating as much. He begged them to reach out to Julia, who he said would confirm what he was telling them by writing, quote, I know by now that you have decided. You are wrong. It is very likely I will lose my life on account of that. And if I do, the great God will hold you accountable. End quote. A newspaper in New Orleans arranged for Julia to come down to Louisiana so that she could identify the boy as well. She arrived May 1st, 1913. Yet upon arrival felt out of place and very uneasy as the town of Opelousas had already decided that it was Bobby Dunbar. In fact, the town had celebrated Bobby's return by riding him into the town square on a fire truck covered in flowers. This poor kid. He's so confused. Yeah. They were essentially throwing this whole celebration, this huge party. They gave the kid a pony and a bicycle. Which, imagine, okay, if, if it's not him, if it's neither of those kids, which we'll get into that later, this kid, essentially, upon seeing Leslie Dunbar, you know, it, like I mentioned before, it's, it's very conflicting. He could have been saying, you know, I've, I've never seen this woman before in my life. And then he gets a pony and gets a bicycle. He gets this whole parade, this great big grand welcome to this town and he's like oh my gosh this is kind of nice i kind of like it here yeah this is my mom you can call me bobby (laughs) i'll be done bobby dunbar as long as you want me to be so i just i think that's kind of interesting and some people i think later on started to theorize that it's possible the kid may have been convinced to be Bobby Dunbar because of the celebration, because of the opulent gifts that they were giving him. Because mm-hmm. everybody everybody wanted it to be true, so they essentially tried to make it be true. Yeah, exactly. If it wasn't him. Exactly. On the other hand, however, Julia had been missing her child for 15 months since she had allowed Walters to take hers with him. Similarly to Lessie, Julia also had difficulty identifying the boy as her son at first, yet later said, quote, her mother's heart, end quote, knew the boy was in fact her son. In comparison to Lessie, Julia's uncertainty painted her as a monster with the press, whereas Lessie was forgiven. The press also admonished her for having three kids from two different men. The press implied that she was illiterate, 
of below average intelligence was a prostitute and painted her as an incompetent mother as she had lost all three of her children in less than a year. She'd had to give up her daughter for adoption. She had a baby that died and was wrongfully blamed for that death and then had Bruce taken away from her. You know, it's such a shame that they didn't have DNA back then. This could have saved everybody a lot of hassle. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, stick around for the ending because we come back to that. Okay. (laughs) One newspaper said about Julia Anderson, quote, she had not seen her son since February of 1912. She had forgotten him. Animals don't forget, but this big, coarse countrywoman, several times a mother, she forgot, end quote, which is harsh. Wait, big, harsh. coarse countrywoman. <laughs> She's from, what was it, New Jersey? What did I say? <laughs> I don't remember where she's from. Later on, a court-appointed arbiter ruled that the boy was the missing Bobby Dunbar and not Anderson's son. Since Anderson had no lawyer, no money, and no allies in Opelousas, she left to go back home, and the boy was uncontestedly allowed to remain as Bobby Dunbar. Walters faced a two-week trial during which he was convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to life in prison. However, just two years later, his sentence was overturned on an appeal and he was granted a new trial. As for the boy, he grew up and lived as Bobby Dunbar. He fell in love at 18 with a young woman named Marjorie. They married in 1935 and had four children. He passed away in 1966, believing he was Bobby Dunbar. However, in 1999, His granddaughter, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, started digging into her family history because she was absolutely intrigued by the mystery surrounding Bobby Dunbar. She eventually got the idea to test her grandfather's DNA. Her grandfather, Bobby Dunbar Jr., agreed to give DNA samples to compare to one given by her great uncle's uh, her great uncle, sorry, a son of Bobby's brother, Alonzo. Shockingly, the DNA results did not match. So he was not, in fact, Bobby this Dunbar. Was a, yeah, this was a huge shock to the Dunbar family and led many people to believe that the boy was, in fact, Bruce Anderson. That he had been Bruce Anderson this wow. entire time. But it's important to note that in this DNA test, they were only testing to rule whether or not they were Dunbar's. So they took his DNA and compared it to Dunbar DNA simply to rule out, yes, he's a Dunbar, no, he's not a Dunbar. The DNA was never tested against Anderson DNA for a match. So we don't know if he's an Anderson. We just know that he's not a Dunbar. For all, like, And since DNA results are conclusive, we may never know what happened to the real Bobby Dunbar because... If the guy was not, he, we know conclusively he was not Bobby Dunbar. There has not been any testing against Anderson DNA, but what if he's neither of them? Then it's just some boy. Because if it's not, if it's neither of them, that's Bobby Dunbar and Bruce Anderson who are still missing. It's an incredibly sad story all around, but at least Bobby Dunbar ended up having a decent life. 
and he grew up and, and got married and he didn't know who he was maybe but he had a mm-hmm. he was I think it was his son Bobby Dunbar Jr. recalled a conversation that he'd had with Bobby Dunbar asking you know how something along the lines of how do you know that we are who we say we are and that Bobby Dunbar Sr. had answered I am who I am and you are who you are and that's just how it is okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) but this concludes our missing persons episode for today I think it was a good one. It was a good start to our missing persons series. Series. I'm and, I'm excited to do more of them. Yes. There were quite a lot of good ones that I found. I've got like a list going of cases that I want to cover. So I'm very excited. I think it's especially fun to do these old cases. Yeah. That might not have been completely solved, so All right, that wraps up our podcast for today.